If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. And I'm just going to be honest with you, we're going to cover some ground this morning. So I hope you, I hope you brought your seatbelts, because we're, we're going to cover a lot of ground. And I actually thought about having Ray uh, Villeman come and, and read this passage, because there's a lot of hard names in here. So that's Ray's specialty. He loves doing that. So, you know, here in March, we are going to have a, a revival at our church. We're going to have uh, Brother Roger Palmer speaking and, and Derek McClendon from Calvary Baptist and Manny leading us in worship. And, you know, I, I've just been thinking how much we need revival. And I'm not just talking about just us as a church, but just we as, as a body in this, in this area, like we need renewal. That's what, I mean, that's what revival is. It, it's, it's a sense of, of renewal. We're so full of idols, we're so full of, you know, we, we put other idols up in the place of God, and a lot of times our idols deceive us and we can't even see what they are. A lot of times we'll, we'll humble ourselves in prayer and the Lord show us the idols and He starts to show us things and we're like, man, I didn't even know that was there. Lord, you know, show me, is there, is there some sin that I'm struggling with and he shows us something that we didn't really even think about before. We need renewal. And, and I pray that renewal happens all across our, our area. And so I started asking myself, what does it look like for revival to happen? What does it look like for this renewal to happen? And we have a great example in King Josiah. We have a great example of, of a king who embodies exactly what renewal looks like. He goes tearing down idols and he, he brings this, this great restoration to the people of God. He reforms worship. He, he reforms the, the idolatry. He's going around throughout the kingdom tearing down idols and at the heart of all of this restoration that God is doing is one simple thing. In the text that we're looking at this morning, they have found God's Word. Lost in the temple. I don't know how you lose God's Word in the temple, but they managed to do it. They find it, and the attitude that King Josiah has towards it is not one of haughtiness. I'll, I'll do what it says. I'll, I'll value it if, it if it benefits me. I'll value it if, if it actually goes along with what I wanted to do anyway. But what we see is, is a man who humbly puts himself under God's Word and submits to it. And the, the interesting thing is, that's what is at the heart of all of the renewal that is happening in 2 Kings 22 and 23. This is not something new. There was a great... This, this history shows us this very same thing. One of the greatest revivals that the world has ever known, the Reformation, Martin Luther... And, and, and many others that, that worked alongside him. How did that begin? What was at the heart of that? It was the same thing. It was a recovery of God's Word. It was a recovery of God's Word. So ultimately, King Josiah submitted to God's Word. And that led to his obedience and his reform. And just like Josiah, y'all catch this. Just like Josiah, we also should humbly... Submit to 
God's word ourselves. We've got to submit to it too. It's not just enough for Josiah. We should have this same attitude that he has. So if you would please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. And I hope if you have an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or whatever, make sure it's on because you want to get credit for this standing you're about to do. 2 Kings 22, we'll start reading in verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servant has emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered, in, delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Hikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people." and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, and Hikam, and Achbor, and Shaphan, and Asiah, try saying that three times fast, went to Haldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe, now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. So they're at the prophetess. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because, this is why, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. So God's just saying, hey, you're not going to see any of the disaster that's coming on the people. Then... The king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all the priests, and all the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book, and all the people joined in the covenant. This is where it heats up. 
And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and the host of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought out all the priests of the cities of Judah and defiled the high, and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Melech. And he removed the horses that the king of Judah had dedicated to the son at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which is in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars of the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars of Manasseh, which had made the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. See, right? There we go. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took all the bones of the tombs and burned them at the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is in the monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is a tomb of the man God, the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they left, let his bones alone and the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines, also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord in anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Y'all were almost there. Y'all hang with me. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover has been kept the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away 
the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he may establish the words of the Lord of the law that were written in the book of Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still the Lord did not turn from his, the burning of his great wrath by which the anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Let's pray. You can have a seat. Father, thank you for your word. As we read so many words that describe in such great detail for us the lengths, the lengths that your king went to to tear down idols, I pray, Lord, that we would have the same attitude. That whatever it takes... that we would rip down the idols of our heart. Lord, we need you like a hurricane to come to tear our walls down, to tear our hearts to pieces, Lord, that we might be healed. So, Father, I pray that as we look at your word, that we would humble ourselves before it. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I, I, I was thinking about maybe I should just dismiss after this. You know, that was, that was good. What we see is Josiah showing us an example of how we should humble ourselves and submit to God's Word. After Josiah's example, we should treasure God's Word. We should... Submit to God's Word, and we should obey God's Word. We see in the first few verses that the book of the law is found. Now, let me give you a little background. Let me give you a little background. We kind of picked up mid-story here, but Josiah, the king that we were reading about here, his grandfather was King Manasseh. Manasseh was probably one of the most evil kings that ever ruled over God's people. He was so bad that this is, what, this is what it says about him. That he led Judah to do, to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So he's saying like the, the, the people that God destroyed through Israel, as wicked as they were, Manasseh was worse. He was known for setting up idols all over the place as we just saw. His son, after he died, reigned in his place. And then finally, when his son died, his grandson, Josiah, began to reign. He started reigning when he was eight years old. So not, not, not a really old guy, not very experienced. So after eight years, so this would be when he was 16, that's kind of when we first start to see him doing something. When he was 16... Uh, he began seeking the Lord himself and tearing down idols. 
We see that in 2 Chronicles 34, which tells the story uh, uh, slightly differently. And then a few years later, at the age of 26, he began repairing the temple. And I just want to say this. When we, we look at such a young king, a lot of times, and I'm speaking to our younger people here, don't wait until you're old to start seeking the Lord. I mean, here's a guy who started reigning when he was eight, who started, you know, seeking the Lord at 16. I mean, God can use you to do great things. Don't think that, uh, well, I've, I've got to get a little bit older. I've got to, you know, I'll, I'll do what I want to do now and then later on. No, seek the Lord now while he may be found, as Isaiah tells us. So we see the background. We see that, that Josiah is repairing the temple. And while they are working on the temple, they find the book of the law. Scholars say it was probably Deuteronomy that they found, the specific book that they found. But the question is, how do you lose God's Word in God's house? Right? I mean, sure, there's, there's probably churches today that probably wouldn't miss the Bible at all if it went missing. But how do you lose God's Word in God's house? I remember a pastor telling me a story that, he, that his church was having a controversy and he, he approached some of the leaders of the church, some of the deacons and, and some others, and he said, according to the Bible, this is the way that we proceed. And it was a really inconvenient, uh, it was an inconvenient path that they were going to have to take. It was uncomfortable. One of the deacons spoke up and he said, Pastor, I don't care what the Bible says, this is the way that we're going to do it. Okay, so let me just say, sure, a church would never say, well, we just want to depose the Bible. We want to just throw the Bible out. We want to, we want to lose the, the Bible, but we do it in other ways. We do it with our attitudes. Chances are, for Josiah, for that period, they lost it because King Manasseh, the grandfather, he didn't want to have anything to do with God. He was setting up idols. He was rebelling against God. They, he didn't want to have anything to do. These words were inconvenient to him, and so he conveniently lost them. Put them on a shelf, as it were. Collected dust, and then eventually people just forgot it was there. And notice what happens when they discover it. They, they treasure it. They value it. The, the priest finds it, and, and what, what do we see happening there? He reads it. He doesn't just put it back on the shelf and say, well, it's forgotten after all these years. It's got some really bad words in there for us, so let's put it back on the shelf. No, he reads it, and then eventually it makes its way all the way to the king who reads it. We see in just the discovery of it that it was valued. That it wasn't just put back on a shelf. It wasn't just put back where it was. But they actually took it out and they wanted to read it. They wanted to seek the Lord through it. So I, I just wonder about us. Do, are we that way with God's Word? I mean, think about it. Do we put it on the shelf of our heart and think, well, I, I'm just not going to really worry about that. Or are we people who just treasure it? Who are constantly reading it, constantly studying it? My former pastor in North Carolina, uh, Tony Morita, told the story one time of a UNC Chapel Hill professor by the name of Bart Ehrman, who is an agnostic New Testament professor. 
And this is what, what Bart Ehrman wrote in his book. He, he teaches New Testament. He doesn't believe it's true. He doesn't believe it's uh, God's Word at all. This is what he says. He says, I'm teaching a large undergraduate class this semester on the New Testament. And of course, most of my students are from the South. Most of them have been raised in good Christian families. I found over the years that they have a far greater commitment to the Bible than knowledge about it. So this last semester, I did something I normally don't do. I started off my class of 300 by saying the first day, how many of you in here would agree that with the proposition that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Boom! Every hand went up. Most hands, just a forest of hands, went up. Okay, that's great, he says. Now, how many of you have read the Da Vinci Code? Once again, boom, forest of hands went up. How many of you have read the entire Bible? A few hands, scattered hands, he says. This is what he told them. I'm not telling you that I think God wrote the Bible. I don't believe it. But you're telling me that you think God wrote the Bible. I can see why you'd want to read a book by Dan Brown. But if God wrote a book, wouldn't you want to see what he had to say? So this is one of the mysteries of the universe, he writes. How sad that we, we have to have an agnostic New Testament professor come and say, look, God's people don't treasure his word. God's people say that they believe God wrote a book, but they don't treasure it. They don't value it. They don't even read it. They don't know what it says. So listen, church, we don't need to wait on a New Testament agnostic professor to come and point that out to us. We need to be people of the book. We need to be people who treasure it not just in name only, but treasure it in practice. When you come in our homes, you should see that the Bible is welcome there, that the Bible is treasured, that we're reading it, that we're trying to memorize it, that we're trying to study it. Parents, your kids need to see that you treasure the Word of God. They need to see you reading God's Word. They need to see you studying God's Word. Grandparents, the same. Do we really treasure it like we see it being treasured here in 2 Kings? After we see an example of treasuring God's Word, Josiah shows us how we should approach God's Word. Not just how we should treasure it, but the attitude with which we should approach it. And that attitude is humility. The second thing that we see based on his example is that we should submit to God's Word. We should submit to God's Word. Notice in verse 11 of 22 what he does when he hears God's Word read to him. The very first thing that we see is he tears his clothes as a sign of humble brokenness and repentance. Josiah is saying, woe is me. When, when we see him doing that, we see a humble man, a broken man. And what he does next is he sends the priests out to inquire from a, a prophet, a prophetess, what's really going to happen to the people? He finally sees all the evil that his people have done, and now he's going inquiring of the Lord, what's going to happen to us? Now let me just say, in doing that, he's making a statement that he believes that the words he just read are authoritative over his life, over the life of his people. 
If he didn't believe, if he didn't see the Word of God as over him and him humbly under it, if he didn't see it as an authority, he wouldn't have sent the priest to say, Lord, what's, what's going to happen to us? We've disobeyed. He would have probably said something like his grandfather, put it back on the shelf. And so we see in just this very simple act that he sees God's Word as authoritative over him. That he knows that there are consequences to not following what God has said. So they go to the, the prophetess and God speaks to them. And this is the message He sends to, to Josiah. That disaster is coming because my people have forsaken me. For generations, God's people have rejected Him. We can read earlier in the book, king after king after king led the people in idolatry. And finally, God is sending calamity. This is not unfair. It's not as if God didn't warn them. He warned them, if you turn to idols, bad things will happen. And this is not new either. God repeatedly tells His people, like in Jeremiah 2, that this is what happens when we turn to idols. This is what Jeremiah says. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Listen, God is saying to His people, when you reject Me, when you turn to idols, there is nothing left for you except misery and calamity. Look, if we dig deep in a lot of our lives, we'll see that very truth at work. When we turn from the Lord, we're miserable. If we're in Christ, when we're turning away from Him, it's not like that's, we're not going to be happy. We're not going to have the joy that He describes. And that's what we see at work among His people. They have turned away from Him, and the only thing left for them is calamity and destruction. So Josiah approaches God's Word very humbly and submissively. How do you and I approach God's Word? How do we approach the Bible? We might be people who just see the Bible as a bunch of interesting facts. I mean, right, this is many, many people. They're intrigued by all of the mystery and the wonder of the Bible. They've got lots of questions about, about the end times. They've got lots of questions about uh, in the Old Testament, like these things that are hard to understand that we just simply don't have the answer to. They're so interested in all of these things about the Bible, but that's where it stops. It's just a book that intrigues them. Do you view the Bible as suggestions? Well, I'll obey it if it's convenient. I'll obey it if that's what I was going to do anyway. Maybe some of you are just not committed to it. You might affirm its authority in name, but you deny it with practice. In your mind, you think that we are humbly submissive to the Bible, but you never read it. You never study it. You don't even know what it says. Listen, church, how can we, if we view the Bible that way, how can we say that we obey what God says when we don't even know what God says? 
when we're so wrapped up in all of the finer details of things that we're never going to know the answer to, that we miss the big picture of what God is telling us. I mean, how many people do you know that you would say, that person really knows his or her Bible? And then when you go and ask them, they're, they're, not, they're not interested in the Bible as an authority. They're interested in all of the facts. They're interested in all of the stuff. Listen, church, if we're going to be people of the book, And it changes how we approach God's Word. It means that we come to it humbly. We come to it submissively. And we see it as an authority over us. That's the way that we see Josiah. We see him submitting to it. Listen, just like him, we too must submit to it in every aspect of our lives. In other words, when we come to Scripture, we have to be people who ask, what does the Bible say about being a good spouse? What does the Bible say about being a good parent? About being a good employee? About being a good church member? All of these things, every aspect of our life, we bring under the authority of God's Word and we recognize that it has the right to tell us what to do. How should I live my life? What kind of relationship should I have? It all falls under the authority of God's Word. And we have a tendency of saying, Lord, Your Word only applies to this. I'll submit this part of my life to it, but not this part. Listen, church, we've got to be people that submit the whole thing to what God says. So Josiah submits himself to God's Word, and the last thing we see him doing is he obeys it. And really, the obedience flows out of the submission, right? When you truly submit to something, you you obey what it says. Notice something that's very interesting. Now we're, we're looking at chapter 23 here. Notice when he starts obeying God's Word, notice the timing. I love it. He starts obeying God's Word right after God says, I'm still going to bring calamity on you. I'm still going to bring judgment against the people. I'm going to hold it off for a little while because you're a very repentant king because you're faithfully seeking me, but it's still going to come. Why didn't Josiah just say, well, Lord, if you're going to destroy us anyway, I don't want to have anything to do with your word. If you're going to to bring judgment on us anyway, I'm not going to obey what you said. But we see right at the heart of Josiah that Josiah, listen, is not obeying God to get something out of it. He's not obeying God just to gain. He's obeying God simply because He loves Him. That's why Jesus says, it reminds me of Jesus' words in John. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Josiah truly loves the God of the book. And he's diligent to obey. Listen, do we obey because of what we can get? Do we obey God because maybe if we obey, He'll bless us? If we obey God and, and we live the you know, quote-unquote good Christian life, then we'll have a good social standing in our community? Listen, that's called prosperity theology. That's called serving God to get some gain out of it. And God will have nothing to do with that. 
We obey God not to gain. We obey God because we love Him. Notice that Josiah obeys God completely. Commentators have said that he was so systematic in his obedience. He was so comprehensive in his obedience. And let me tell you, you just stood as we read through all of his obedience. How many of y'all thought that was long? How many of y'all were thinking, like, has the preacher lost his mind? Couldn't he give us the, you know, like the cliff notes of this? I mean, when I read through this, I just think, my goodness, why couldn't the writer have just said, and he obeyed what God said? He tore down the idols. Do we really have to know all the stuff that he did? And the answer, of course, is yes. Because the writer wants us to know that he didn't just obey God a little bit, but he went all throughout the kingdom and started tearing stuff down. And we see a picture of a king who's going through as he's tearing down idols, and somebody says, well, you missed one. So then he goes and tears it down too. He defiles all these false religions. He's going through and rectifying all that his fathers and grandfathers have done. It's comprehensive. It's complete. It's immediate. He doesn't wait. He does it right then. We see that he gathers the people together and he renews the covenant, verses 1 to 3. We see verses 4 to 20 that he goes and tears down idols throughout the kingdom. And finally, in verses 21 and 23, he restores the Passover, which had long been neglected. You know, this reminds me of, of parenting. Before I was a parent, I really didn't have a concept of what it meant for children to obey. But now that I'm a parent, I almost feel like I'm an expert at it. And I'm not talking about an expert in them obeying me. I'm talking about an expert of knowing that they don't obey. Like children just have some innate thing in them that causes them not to want to obey. They're born with it. Can I get a witness? They're born with it. When we tell our kids to do something... What do we expect them to do? Exactly what we told them to. And, and not only that, when I tell my children to do something, I expect them to do it completely and immediately. It's usually one of the two that we, that we mess up on, right? They may do it immediately, but they don't do everything that I ask them to do. Or they may do everything that I ask them to do, but they wait, you know... 30 minutes to do it. And listen, we as parents know this to be true. When you miss one of those two things, what do we call that? Disobedience. If you don't obey completely, or if you don't obey immediately, you're getting in trouble for not obeying. Listen, when it comes to God, it works very similarly. God expects us to obey Him. If we're in Christ, if you're one of His people, He expects you to obey Him completely and immediately. If I ask you, are you, are you being obedient to God? I don't think there's a person in here who would say, no, I'm, I'm disobedient. But a question we've got to ask ourselves is, are we doing it completely and immediately? Because if we're not, then listen, friends, that is disobedience. Are we obeying God's Word? 
Do we make excuses for it? You know, God, I, I, I would like to do what you want me to do, but... Or a lot of times we say the age-old lie, the very first lie that was ever told. Did God really say? Serpent in the garden. Did God really say? As sinful people, we find every way to wiggle out of doing what God tells us to do. Are we being obedient? The last thing that we see in the text towards the end of of 23 is that the Lord's judgment still comes. After all this, all the obedience, all of the faithfulness, the Lord's judgment still comes. It says in uh, verses 24 and 25, there was no king before or after Josiah that so faithfully served the Lord. Listen, when you, go, when you go start listing the kings by the ones who are most faithful, a lot of times we want to put David at the top. According to what the Bible says, Josiah's at the top. There's no king who's ever been before him, who ever came after him, who was so faithful to what God said. If ever there was going to be a king that would lead the people to do good, to, in a way, weigh out the the bad things that they've done, it would be this king. But God still brings judgment on the people. Eventually, Josiah dies, and eventually another bad king comes and rules in his place. Here's the point, church. Y'all come in real close. I want y'all to hear this. The point of this is very simply that even the good works of the best king cannot atone for the people's sin. God is a just God. He will not let sin go unpunished. And even the best work of the very best king could not undo what they had done wrong. And we find ourselves in a very similar situation. All of our good will not undo the wrong that we've done. Even the very best person cannot atone for that sin. But, 600 years later, another king would come. A king that was even better than Josiah. A king that perfectly embodied the law of the Lord. A king that never sinned. A king that never disobeyed. His obedience was perfect. And this king turned away wrath. Not by his own goodness, but by being a sacrifice for sinners. And of course, I'm speaking about the Lord Jesus Himself. A descendant of Josiah. The question before us today is, are we trusting this king? You know, I said a lot of times we, we don't see the forest for the trees. We're so intrigued by the minor details that we don't see the grand picture of the Bible and how it's pointing us to this Jesus. And listen, church, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't be so intrigued by the things. Don't be so captured by the nuances and all that, that you miss. It be a tragedy if you miss the fact that it all points to Jesus. 
that it all points to the fact that we ourselves cannot earn God's favor. That we cannot atone for our own sin. And we need to trust the one who came, who did the impossible, who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve. We should follow Josiah's example as it comes to God's Word. We should treasure God's Word. We should submit to God's Word humbly. And we should let that humility and that submission cause us to obey God's Word. As we come to a time of response, that's my question before you today. First of all, the King that all of this points to, are you trusting Him? Are you seeking your right standing before God in Him? And finally, are you being obedient to God's Word? Are you submitting to it? Do you see it as the authority? Because listen, I'm convinced of this. We can have revival meeting after revival meeting. But unless we are students, unless we are people of the book, revival will never Come to us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to live out the thing that we say we believe. That the Bible is your word. Lord, help us to live out this truth in each and every one of our daily lives. Lord, let the Bible be precious to us. Let us be marked as people who read it often. Who turn to it often. Who are constantly asking, what does the Bible say about this or that in our lives? And Father, as we, as we submit ourselves to it, as we put ourselves under your authority, help us, Lord, to obey. Help us, Lord, to obey immediately and completely. Lord, make us people of the book. In Jesus' name.